0: US President Joe Biden says that he'll support moves to waive the patents of coronavirus vaccines. We'll assess the implications. Elections are taking place in the UK today and among them are votes for mayor in several English cities. We'll look at how the role of the mayor has changed in the UK over the past few years. And pack your bags, we're off to Switzerland. Well, that's if Roger Federer and Robert De Niro, the stars of a new Swiss tourism campaign, have anything to do with it. We'll look at some of the more creative ways tourism bodies around the world are pitching themselves to travellers post-pandemic. Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today here on The Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to The Late Edition here on Monocle 24. It is Thursday the 6th of May and I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto and with us today are our regular Thursday duo, Monocle 24's Carlotta Ribello, who's in London, and Monocle's New York correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan. Henry, Carlotta, great to have you both with us on the programme today. Henry, quite a big week in New York this week, uh, given that we now have a date for when the theatres on Broadway will reopen. Have you snapped up any tickets yet?
1: I haven't, Thomas, uh, yet. Have you?
0: No, I have not. Given that I'm in Toronto, it's a bit more of a trek for me than it is for you.
1: On the other hand, you do have a far higher level of commitment to attending Broadway shows historically, so I wonder if that might have tipped it in, uh, tipped it in the other direction. No, I have not.
0: I can't argue with
1: that. I I, I haven't snapped up any yet. I've never actually been to a, uh, to a Broadway show, so I might actually go mainly for kind of anthropological research reasons uh, when they when they reopen and if so I will be uh, reporting back to you
0: please do and carlotta uh, you've also well you have in fact snapped up some tickets for the reopening of the west end in london so little bird tells me
2: Yes, uh, I'm very happy to be the ticket holder (laughs) for uh, somewhere in June and beginning of July uh, to go and see Under Milkwood um, at the National Theatre. So I'm very much looking forward to that. I've missed the theatre. And it was such a weird experience, obviously, booking the tickets online once uh, to start with. Like, I haven't done that in a while. And second, you know, I I used to go to the National Theatre quite often and almost know more or less, you know, within my uh, budget um, where to pick a seat. But then you go to pocket and most of them are gone, like not as in gone like being that they were sold. They physically have been removed because, of course, of social distancing and not being able to be at full capacity. But nonetheless, I'm very excited to uh, just watch some... Um, great theatre and actors doing what they do best.
0: And are you also excited about these pilots that have been taking place in the UK this week, Carlotta, uh, for the return of clubbing? Are you dusting off your dancing shoes already?
2: Look, the the pilots happened in Liverpool and I do not know why there's not protests on the streets demanding the pilots here in London, or at least in my (laughs) own neighbourhood. But no, here in the UK uh, this past weekend, which was a bank holiday weekend, so a longer one, uh, Liverpool did a big... um, live event slash club night trial. Um, About 5,000 people in total attended, all required to test beforehand. Um, But during the actual event, there was no social distancing, no masks. It was, you know, back to business, dancing close to people, jumping, singing, sharing drinks, everything that you want slash regret in the next day when you go on a night out. Uh, And it was just marvellous to see, you know, the footage coming out of it and, uh, and just hearing people that attended just, you know, That's part of life and of living in cities and um, it's a pilot to see not only about obviously clubs which even last year when there was a relaxation of the rules never opened but uh, more importantly live events, uh, concerts, um, uh, DJs playing, all of that. It was a great trial that so far from what the data suggests so far has gone Pretty well. Um, of course, it's going to take a, at least I think it's fourteen days to get the full results back. If to know if people tested positive afterwards, etc. But it it was just great to see the reports rolling all over over the weekend. And it wasn't just from you know uh, the youth going to these events, but you'd have you know. Um, virologists and health professionals, journalists there having fun and attending the event. So in the name of journalism, I'm putting my hand up to go to the next one, please.
0: (laughs) Well, Carlotta Ribello to be seen on a dance floor near you very soon. Carlotta, Henry, great to have you both with us on the programme today. US President Joe Biden yesterday gave his support to growing international calls to waive the patents of coronavirus vaccines developed in the US in order to boost the production process of vaccines and their availability to those parts of the world hardest hit by COVID-19. Monocle's health and science correspondent Dr Chris Smith had more for us on the story on today's edition of The Briefing.
3: What a lot of countries, India, South Africa are arguing is that expensive patents owned by the owners of the intellectual property behind these vaccines prevent on-the-ground local manufacturer vaccines, and that could impede vaccine supply. The flip side of this, on the other hand, from the pharmaceutical sector, but also independent, impartial commentators, is that really the bottleneck isn't patents. It's just vaccine supply. It's the ability to make vaccines, because it's not just a recipe book. It is the know-how and the magic hands approach that goes with making these things that's really important too. So it's not everything, it's a step in the right direction in terms of mass production of vaccines, but
0: it's not the whole story. Dr Chris Smith there, speaking to us on the briefing a little earlier today. Um, Henry, how significant would you say is this statement by President Biden yesterday, and how is it being received in the United States? The
1: potential impact of the policy uh, that he proposed is enormously uh, significant. It would open up production of coronavirus vaccines beyond the the really handful of companies that have developed them and currently manufacture them and, uh, and uh, open it up to, to any, other, any number of other companies around the world to doing so. In the US it's been received differently depending on who you ask. There are Democrats who have been advocating for this and uh, health public health advocates who have been advocating for this move for a long time uh bernie sanders and elizabeth warren are among them they obviously welcome the decision uh they think that it's uh important for the united states uh to uh, uh project a, uh project moral leadership uh on the global stage uh by by not withholding uh the ability to uh to produce these vaccines which is how 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 advocates of the of the policy view the U.S.'s actions uh, so far? On the other hand, as as Chris Smith mentioned, there are strong voices of opposition from within the U.S. pharmaceutical industry. Now, an obvious motivation for them to oppose the measure is that these companies don't want what they consider to be their intellectual property to be taken from them, essentially, or, or at least not defended. Um, you know, quite straightforwardly, that would make them less profitable. Shares of um, BioNTech, Moderna and and Novavax, three of the big pharmaceutical companies with responsibility for manufacturing the vaccine, dropped on Wednesday afternoon after this announcement. Um, but as Chris Smith also mentioned, there are substantive considerations from both within and without the pharmaceutical industry uh, that simply handing over... The recipe book essentially and i've, I've read several uh, uh op- op- opponents of this policy who have used culinary metaphors handing over merely the recipe book without any of the kitchen staff or the or the or the kitchens that are needed to prepare the recipes uh that is the vaccine safely uh is 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 not only counterproductive but actually could be directly harmful um basically these these large u.s pharmaceutical companies you know have developed extraordinarily complex procedures for manufacturing these vaccines safely and responsibly. Uh, they will not have oversight over the way their vaccine recipes are produced in other countries, in countries outside of the United States. And Europe and Britain, of course, are also uh, have their own vaccines they want to protect. Um, and, and and there is a legitimate concern that um, that this, this could lead to serious public health drawbacks.
0: So with that in mind, Carlotta, if patents are ultimately waived on some of the the coronavirus vaccines currently in use in many parts of the world, what would that mean in reality then for how quickly vaccine production can in fact be scaled up?
2: Well, um, I think it can help, but we need to remember that the patents are just one of the many steps. Getting access to the components of making a vaccine is another entire conversation that not a lot of countries might be able to access. Uh, You know, this temporary relief from patents doesn't necessarily um, equate, you know, Uh, an immediate uh, uh, speeding up of manufacturing or of the supply. Um, We need to think about, you know, securing all the components, uh, setting up the factories in countries where that doesn't exist, uh, training people, and even going further than that, passing relevant laws that apply to that. And, you know, all of these things are essential to vaccine delivery. But, you know, what's in question here is allowing nations to develop um, a generic uh, version of the vaccine, their own uh, version um, in their own country so that, you know, we can stop referring to the Moderna, the Pfizer, the AstraZeneca jab and just call it the coronavirus vaccine. And it's a generic um, from each country uh, in each of these nations. Um, I think it's an important first step, uh, but uh, and that it will ultimately help some of these bumps that we've seen along um, the vaccination drive that's happening worldwide. And it will definitely help help with uh, some of the world's poorest nations um, to be able to at least start a conversation and start considering how they could manufacture these rather than rely on uh, imports from other countries, um, but re- realistically, I think we're still a, a few months, if not more, f- away, far further away from you know getting these vaccines fully developed in these nations.
0: Well, next here on The Late Edition, a slate of elections is taking place across the United Kingdom today, among them elections for city mayors across England. And for this week's edition of The Urbanist, we spoke to Akash Porn, who is a senior fellow at the Institute for Government think tank in London, on the role many mayors play in English cities today.
3: These are mayors who have responsibility for some important Public services, typically they have responsibility for public transport, for investments in infrastructure and so on. They have responsibility for planning and deciding where new houses and other things should be built. They have a role often in further education, in skills provision and so on. And in some cases, this applies to the London mayor and the mayor of Manchester as well. They're also responsible for police and fire services. So um, there are some quite important issues that do fall within the control or responsibility of the mayor. And they also do just have a big public profile they got a personal mandate and, and that gives them quite a lot of authority to speak on behalf of their city or region, to negotiate with central government for more funds or other support and to coordinate as well, to bring local stakeholders, other local leaders and business and so on
0: together to, for example, achieve certain infrastructure plans and so on. Akash Porn there, a senior fellow at the Institute for Government think tank in the UK, speaking to us for this week's edition of The Urbanist. Carlotta, the role of the mayor in several English cities has changed in quite significant ways over the past few years, hasn't it?
2: Yes, particularly in the past decade uh, here in the UK, this idea of creating metro mayors was uh, first introduced. And basically the best way to describe a metro mayor, you know, it's the combined authority of mayors. So these are directly elected leaders of city regions that... um, span a number of local council areas um, and each of them, uh, each of these metro mayors chairs a mayoral combined authority which is then formed by all the leaders of the councils in the region if I'm making sense and it goes to uh, the point that we were hearing there from our guest um, that you know having a metro mayor speaking for a wider region representing more people then we'll have he will, able, will be able to have more leverage when trying to negotiate with central government Government or when trying to, you know, uh, ask for different things for his city slash region, um, it's a different power behind you than just a city. Uh, so we've seen that introduced a cu- uh, across a couple of cities here in the UK. But, you know, today, uh, today's elections... Um, really have highlighted the importance of having a good leader. Um, And I think that's a consequence of the past 18 months um, of a pandemic and where more often than not, mayors and local leaders and metro mayors came across as obviously understanding their region, their city, their constituents much better than central government, which in a way, it's granted central government. That's why it's called central government has a more national, um, wider looking approach uh, to issues. But this, this These past 18 months really have highlighted how having a good mayor that's on your side really can make a difference. And more often than not, the decisions taken at a local level are the ones that have a more immediate impact um, in citizens' lives and um, more palpable in that sense and uh, that people more easily recognise. So these elections, I mean, it's quite astonishing. A lot of the mayoral elections um, were meant to happen last year. But then, you know, the pandemic prompted a year-long delay in the casting of many of the ballots. Um, so it has meant that uh, today, the Super Thursday here in the UK, is the biggest set of local elections in this country since 1973, which is quite astonishing. Um, we're talking about, you know, 143 English councils having seats up for grabs, um, even police and crime commissioners, 39 of them up for grabs, and then, yes, 13 Directly elected city and metro uh, mayors, um, yeah, from London to Liverpool, Greater Manchester, um, and other places. It, it, it's it's a lot of people today uh, knowing about their, what's going to happen in the next couple of years of their lives.
0: And Henry, to shift the, the focus to your city, as we've discussed on the programme several times before, New York is electing its own new mayor this year. And mayoral races in New York City are known, I suppose, historically for, for throwing up surprises or, or bucking the patterns of their campaigns. What's the state of the race in New York City so far this time around, Henry?
1: So I, yeah, it's a bit weird um, the way that the race has shaped up so far. The incumbent Bill de Blasio has exhausted his term limit. So he, he will not be running this year. He's not in contention. So there is going to be a new face as of January 1st, 2022, uh, leading the city, you know, s- still on its pandemic recovery. Um, and, and the, the top of the field, the front runners are, are, are has shaped up in a way that you, you might not expect. Um, so, uh, number one consistently in the polls, although he's wavering a bit slightly now is, is Andrew Yang, uh, who is, uh, kind of conjured a political career out of nothing when he, um, when he ran for the, uh for the 2020 Democratic uh, presidential primary, really made a name for himself advocating a national policy of universal basic income, uh, and he's parlayed that now into an extremely successful so-far bid to become the mayor of New York, um, which is is perhaps slightly uh, not what you would have predicted He's not from the city. He doesn't have any political experience at all. He used to be an entrepreneur. Um, and he's relatively centrist at this moment where New York is really undergoing a, a perceived uh, leftist awakening. Um, uh, but he seems to be appealing to, to New Yorkers, I think, who are in the mood for a fresh face and a new approach. Uh, trailing behind him pretty consistently in the polls number two is a guy called Eric Adams he is the uh, borough president currently for Brooklyn he uh, is born and raised in Queens and uh, in, in, in Queens and Brooklyn uh, used to be an NYPD police officer fought racism from within the force uh, was eventually elected to the uh, to the New York Senate uh, and, and, and and rose to becoming Brooklyn borough president he's put in a very strong show in uh, but has been has been trailing behind yang so far and then the third position uh, pretty consistently Consistently has been uh, the city comptroller, which is a role that basically amounts to being the city's accountant. Uh, it's a guy called Scott Stringer. Has by far the most conventional political experience of anyone running. Uh, 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 he's 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 really a stalwart of uh, democratic politics in the city. He's been consistently underperforming in the race, and then last week, on top of the the, the fact that he was underperforming anyway, a former uh, campaign. Uh, campaign volunteer who worked with him 20 years ago accused him of sexual misconduct uh, which uh, led him to lose a bunch of endorsements that he'd managed to rack up from various politicians and uh, and, and political groups. Um, but it's still very much all to play for. The primaries are on June 22nd and there's a sense that the uh, the race is only just heating up. I think it's going to be... I mean, whoever wins of those three is going to be interesting, either for the sheer fact of them winning or the fact that they've managed to come from behind to win it, in the case of Scott Stringer, if he manages to put it off. And, you know, the the, the mayorality in New York is a little bit kind of... A, it's a bit of a kind of sexier office than, than I think, the mayorality in in in, in English cities uh, historically. There's a bit more attention paid to it. There's a bit more pomp and ceremony around it. So should be should be fun to watch, hopefully.
0: The <laughs> cat Well, you can hear more about some of the mayoral races that are taking place in cities around the world this year on this week's edition of The Urbanist, which premiered here on Monocle 24 a little while ago. Well, finally here on the late edition. How to lure travellers back once travel restrictions are relaxed is a question many national tourism authorities are currently pondering. Well, for Switzerland, it's a slightly unlikely double act that its tourism body hopes will bring visitors back. In this new TV commercial, Switzerland's most famous sportsman Roger Federer tries to convince the legendary Hollywood hardman Robert De Niro to pay Switzerland a visit.
3: Hey, Bob, how are you doing? Hey, Roger, how are you? I'm just relaxing in the Swiss Alps. Take a look. Yeah, it's good, good, good for you. Listen, about the Switzerland film you want me to do.
0: Yeah, did you see the boot film I sent you?
3: I'm watching it as we speak. I don't like it. What? Just look at where you are, Roger. I mean, you got your mountains, your skiing resorts, your charming little towns, your green valleys. There's no drama. No drama at all. Seriously? But did you see the bits with the sunset? Roger, from a certain type of actor, I need an edge, conflict, jeopardy. Switzerland is just too perfect
0: new television advert there for Switzerland's Tourism Authority featuring Roger Federer and a, an apparently hard to convince Robert De Niro. Carlotta, you've seen this ad. Have this double act convinced you to pack your bags and venture off to Switzerland as soon as you can?
2: Oh, Tom, I was already fully convinced with 90 Dufourstrasse, Monocle's HQ in Zurich, of course. Uh, but this double act has made me uh, want to visit as soon as possible. I mean, hearing that something is just too perfect, that is quite a sell, if I must be honest. Even though I did like watching the ad scene, you know... They try to portray the chaos of New York City, which I'm sure uh, uh, Henry can attest to. But seeing that, you know, uh, uh, ju- just opposed to all these beautiful um, scenes of the mountains and the lake and you know, all these scenic scenic views, the ideal holiday for me would be to combine both. Um, but yes, I loved this advert. It's just a clash of two worlds uh, that I found quite endearing.
0: And Henry, how did that clash of two worlds play out? Out for you and how imaginative in your mind are national tourism authorities getting do you think in anticipation of the return of travel at scale once again
1: yeah I think there's going to be an enormous push isn't there to kind of open up new destinations in the minds of people who I think are pretty desperate to travel and, and travel hard um, so you know this, this is obviously Switzerland obviously is a uh, roping in two major players uh major celebrities to to assist with their tourism drive it wouldn't surprise me to see uh to see to see other other countries making a big push and as i say i think that people are really open now to visiting like new places places they might not have considered before there are people who've saved up a lot of money over the course of the pandemic that they haven't been spending on holidays that maybe you know they're willing to spend on flying to a lesser known island somewhere in the middle of the ocean or or some kind of uh uh, maybe like a Balkan country that they wouldn't have previously considered. I think the countries need to kind of have a have an eye on availing themselves of of, of this opportunity and, and, of course, all of their partners in terms of airlines, travel agencies, uh, municipal authorities, you know, uh, city-based tourism agencies working in conjunction with national ones, they'll be on board as well.
0: And to put you both on the spot, just finally uh, here on the programme today, if there was one part of the world perhaps that you haven't visited before that you'd be open to a pitch from uh, for a post-pandemic trip, where would that be? Colotta? let's start with you.
2: Oh, God, there's so many places to think of, like you're saying where I haven't been in the world. You know what? I'm open to anywhere in Asia. Pitch me, I'll be there. I don't don't even need to hear the pitch. Just tell me when and I'll go there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Henry, how about you?
1: Are two boring ones, I'm afraid. I'd like to go to Hawaii for some for some reason. It's it's been uh, it's been presenting itself to me recently. The idea of doing that. I'd also like to go to Japan. My sister should be moving there soon, I think. So I'm looking forward to, to visiting there, which I never have before.
2: That's the solution, then, Henry. They pitch us Asia, and we both go to Japan.
1: Yeah, we could do it. You could do a <laughs> monocle tour of Japan. Oh, I mean, that wouldn't be very. That's been done as not yet? by us. Yeah, the, the the Thursday late edition crew spin on it.
0: Well, if you do both end up going as travel buddies, do be sure to send me a postcard, please. Carlotta Rabello and Henry Rees Sheridan, thank you very much to the two of you for being with us today. That's all I'm afraid to say we have time for for the programme today. Today's studio manager in London was Louis Allen. A big thanks to him, as always, too. The late edition returns for the final time at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Thomas Lewis, here in Toronto, thank you very much for listening and for joining us. during during this past year here on The Late Edition. It's been great to have your company. We'll see you soon.